the 29th. Uh, okay, without further ado, let's talk about the Bible. Uh, all right, bust out your Bibles, um, and we are looking at Matthew 4 today. Um, and so you'll see up on the screen the main idea. Uh, so I kind of want to get this to you ahead of time, even before we read the text. Um, we'll go to one more slide. Uh, shout out to my mom in the background of the slides. Uh, so if I... If I say mom, like it actually is my mom, so I, uh, I have trouble calling her Anne. I know you guys all call her Anne, but yeah, she is my mother. Um, but the main idea here, you'll see up on the screen, is that we are invited to participate in God's kingdom through repentance and following Jesus. This morning we're going we're gonna to look at one specific passage, but we're going to touch a lot of the Bible because the, the, this specific passage is, is, is the author's using it to point to the bigger story of God. So we want to honor that this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open them up. If not, it will magically come on the screen. Verse 12, I think, to 22. All right. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulon and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are incredibly grateful for your word. Incredibly thankful that we, as people who, who oftentimes flounder through life as people who are incredibly passionate about the things of you one day and then incredibly selfish the next, that we come to your Bible knowing that it's constant, that it's true, and that we can submit to it. Knowing it's for our good and it, as we lean into it, knowing we lean more and more into your glory. And Father, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning. I pray that you would encourage us. I pray that you would convict us of sin through the Holy Spirit. And I pray that more than anything else, our affections would be stirred towards you. Father, I pray for our church. I pray for the folks that are hurting in our midst, whether it's relationally, whether it's because of a money issue, whether it's because of a housing issue, whether it's because of health issues they're going through. I know so many in our church are struggling in one way or another, and I pray that your kingdom would come. I pray for opportunities for us to be the hands and feet of Jesus. I pray that you would move in our hearts to love in a way that is sacrificial, considering others' needs ahead of our own. And Father, I pray that your, your kingdom 
would come in a beautiful way in our city. And we pray for the other churches around our city. We pray the gospel would be preached, that their people would be encouraged, that non-Christians would come to faith in Jesus through the preaching of your word and the love of your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, I got a slide up on the screen, and I want to ask a question. Raise your hand. Do you guys remember these? Yes? Cliff Notes. What these are are a series of pamphlets, how they describe themselves, a series of pamphlets with summaries and basic analyses of works of literature intended as study aids. Sure. When I was growing up, these were more replacements than aids, but instead of reading a 400-page book like Wuthering Heights, I'd swing by the bookstore, if you remember those, swing by the bookstore, grab the Cliff Notes version, and then learn enough to answer the essay questions for the test. And at the time, 16-year-old Drew thought he was so smart for doing this. And to be frank, I mean, I didn't spend the time to read the whole story and did just fine on the finals. But I look back now, even as my kids are kind of entering the stage where they are are reading more novels and more books in school, and I realized that I missed a ton. Maybe nothing in the short run, but in the long run, and looking back, I missed so much. I missed the enjoyment, maybe not Wuthering Heights, but some of the others. (laughs) I missed the enjoyment of being wrapped up in a story. I missed the impact of being fully engrossed with the characters and the impact that it could have had on me to move me, to stir me. I missed the impact of the lessons that that author had. Sure, I got the Cliff Notes version, but I missed the journey along the way. And I think sometimes we reduce the Bible to Cliff Notes. This is a serious thing. There is a Cliff Notes version of the Old Testament. I did not Photoshop this. And when we do this and we understand the Cliff Notes version of the Bible, we may pass the test, but we miss out on the beauty of the story. We miss out on the depth, the wonder, the bigness of God. And what is that story of Scripture? It's a story of the people of God being in a right relationship to start and then jacking that relationship all up because of their sin and selfishness. And then God writing this long, beautiful, sometimes complicated, shout out Exodus, story of drawing his people back to himself. We have this entire Old Testament that is pointing ahead to Jesus, but is also telling the story of God. The story of God's relationship with his people, the tabernacle, the temple, the sacrifices, the heroes, the flawed, but nonetheless heroes, the Abrahams, the Deborahs, the Davids, the prophets, all leading up to Christ being born, Christ living this life of miracles and healings, challenging conversations, teachings, and establishment, establishing his kingdom, his rule, his reign. And this has been the story we've been in that we as humans have been in for forever. As we think back to huge events in the Old Testament like the Passover, we were just talking about this briefly as a staff a couple weeks ago, God's presence with his people. 
the Passover event, which we don't have time to get into all the details, but it refers back to the liberation from the Egyptian slavery. God saving his people through the sacrifice of an animal and the blood of that animal going over the door so God would pass over the people with his wrath. And what did this signal? Yes, it points ahead to Jesus, but it signaled that God was king and that God had not and will not abandon his people. See, Jesus was that ultimate sacrifice, the pointing ahead in that story, the better animal for the people of God, a signal that he, that God was king. Jesus was just like the Passover, the the communication that God will not abandon his people. He never has and never will. And with God being king, the the next step of that kind of a thought process is that there's a kingdom that we get to be invited into. A kingdom with a story much bigger than us. So we see in this passage in Matthew 4 that that Matthew is showing how Jesus not only fits into the story, but is the central figure. We have this quote from Isaiah, which we're going to touch on in a minute, but Jesus is the fulfillment, the climax, the one who's ushering in this new kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near, and he's inviting you and I into it. And this is what we see in this passage. We begin with John being locked up and Jesus going away to get some time by himself in Galilee. And Matthew points the reader and, and us to this story from Isaiah, which if you read this, you know, in your daily readings, you kind of read 15 and 16, and you're like, cool, like no idea what's going on there. Let's just keep moving to the red stuff. And then, but if you take a step back and say, what is going on? We understand that this citation from Isaiah is incredibly important. Isaiah, in this passage, looking back from Isaiah, in in verses 15 and 16, looking back to Isaiah 9, Isaiah is explaining the exile of God's people under Assyrian deportation. So since so many Assyrian Gentiles were in the northern territory of this place called Israel, Israel could rightly call this territory the Galilee of the Gentiles, which we see in this passage. This road leading through a place called Galilee was the road that returning exiles would have followed. The people of God would have followed at least partway to their various hometowns in Israel. So the people of God are being led by God out of exile. And the light that they saw was metaphorical from their return from that exile that Isaiah was predicting. In other words, Isaiah was predicting A long time before Jesus was even born, Isaiah was predicting a future time where the Jewish people, the people of God, would be safe from their enemies and their land would be prospered. But how would this happen? They did not know in fulfillment back then, but we know through Jesus. Isaiah explains this would closely be connected to the birth of Isaiah, Isaiah 9, I mean, the birth of, of the Messiah. Isaiah 9, 6 says that. Who would be a descendant of who? Of David. Isaiah 9, 7 says that. And given the larger messianic context of the Old Testament, the Old Testament's looking ahead to the Messiah, it could have also intended to refer to the even greater deliverance the Messiah would bring. So that, that passage from Isaiah meant a lot to the people back in the day, but it means even more to us today. 
since no Davidic, meaning somebody in the line of David, I know we're going super Old Testament here, but follow me here, no Davidic king had ever fulfilled this prophecy from Isaiah 9. So it was a prophecy that they had a hint of, it was kind of hanging out in the clouds. What is the fulfillment of it? When is this going to happen? So then Matthew's right in quoting this as a fulfillment of Jesus. Just like the people were brought out of physical slavery in Assyria, so too the Messiah would bring the people, all of God's people, out of the spiritual slavery that our sin puts us under. So Matthew, in his wisdom, is taking the time to point back and saying, this is the grand story. This person that you, are, uh, that you are being introduced to in the gospel of Jesus is part of a much bigger story. And then we say, what's next? And we see in verse 17 that from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So Jesus slides right into his role in the story. And we see here that this God is telling a big story. This is not a YouTube short. This is not an Instagram reel. It's a 10 part movie that if we invite we if we if we respond to the invitation we will be completely swept up in but you see the sad part is that we sometimes miss out on so much because we reduce this to a cliff notes version of jesus he died we believe in him and we spend eternity with him this actually was photoshopped just to make sure you know that um <laughs> But what I'd say here is that this is not, the Cliff Notes version is not wrong. This is the John 3.16 Christianity. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Like, all of that is true. Don't hear for a second from me telling you that's not true. I love John 3.16. I am all in on John 3.16. And I believe every word of it. And Christianity is certainly not less. But the story of God is also so much bigger than just a ticket to heaven. And John would have said the same thing. You and I have been invited to not just have this ticket to the afterlife, but we're a part of a kingdom, and we get to be citizens of that kingdom. We have a king, a benevolent king, and the New Testament theology stresses this good news of the victory for the kingdom of God and how this victory has come, is coming, and will come in completion when Christ comes back. The kingdom does and should permeate everything we will do, and we are citizens of it. And when we, as, as, as people, if you traveled at all, like you understand kind of this idea of being citizens. And we're, you know, I'm going to tread lightly here as I kind of navigate this, but as an American, I, I am a citizen of the United States. So I have a passport. I just found it. So it was, uh, we were going out, you know, out of the country this summer for a little bit, and I had to find it, found it. And I have a passport to go to you know, another country, you know, if they'll let us in, and you know, be able to come back to America. And as I was thinking about this passage, um, my wife and I took a trip to Peru um, for our 10-year anniversary. And my wife is Spanish-speaking, she's bilingual, uh, it's very impressive. And I am like, whatever the opposite of bilingual is, single-lingual, that's uh, me. Um, 
And when we were down there in Peru, like it's beautiful. Like we love, we love being in other countries and, and love learning about the culture. And it's just, it's incredibly beautiful. Uh, and she can like, she like blends in like, we still, well, people are always so impressed at her, her accent and how well she knows Spanish. And they're, uh, you know, whatever the opposite of that is, that's how they look at me. And one night, I'll never forget, one night she was, she was, she had worn out. We had hiking that day, worn out. And I was like, I'll go get takeout. And she was like, you, you. You may not. You may not. Like, this may not work, but like, sure. So she wrote down instructions. I was like, it's fine. I got this. And so I go to the restaurant and I explain, I do my best to explain, this is what we want. And these are the drinks we want. And <laughs> I come back like 30 minutes later. And not only do I have, I've got the wrong food. I've spent twice as much money. But the guy who served me, he, he got the change, realized that I had spent way too much money, had left soon, taken the wrong way. He had actually beat me back to our, our hotel. Like, he, like the napkin my wife had given the instructions on for the Spanish, he was on a hotel napkin. He found the hotel, beat me back there like I couldn't have done a worse job. Like I got the wrong food, spent too much money, and got lost on the way home. And, and I remember thinking like I love this place, but I am, I am not a citizen of Peru. Like this is not, like I, I, do not, I do not blend in here. And so when we think about being a citizen of the kingdom, there's a, there's a part of it that, that feels a little bit like, is that, is that for me? Like do I get to participate in this? And that's how sometimes we feel if we go to another culture, but we, we hear from Jesus is an invitation saying, yes. Even if it feels like, even if you don't feel like you belong, he's saying, please come. You're invited. It's a quote by a guy named Barnabas Piper, and he says, as Christians, we know that Jesus came to die for our sins, to save us from judgment, and to restore our relationship with God. It's easy for us, especially in the West, to think of that individually, as in Jesus saves me from my sins to restore my relationship with God. What we sometimes overlook is that Jesus also came to establish a kingdom, a community of believers who collectively follow and represent him to the world. That is the kingdom to which all Christians belong. It is a kingdom of souls transformed from death to life. From bondage to sin to freedom in Christ, it is Christ's church across the globe. The idea of us being a part of the kingdom does and should permeate everything that we do. Why are we called to be obedient, to follow the commands of God? It's because out of a gratitude for what our king did for us and a way to honor him. Why are we called to be a part of the church, to commit to this messy group of men and women who are sinful, who are struggling to figure out how to love each other, that love each other well, but also their sin hurts each other. We've got to work through forgiveness and pain. That passage that was read earlier about the divisions, we have to lean into what it looks like to be united under Christ. Why are we called to do that? It's because it's the primary avenue for us to experience kingdom community, which we will experience for eternity. Why are we called to love and care for the poor and the overlooked, those experienced injustice? Because the culture, the social expectations of this new kingdom, the culture of this new kingdom is such that it leads us to see them as fellow citizens, as equal in the foot of the cross. So theology of the kingdom, there's 15 more things we could list, but it impacts every aspect of what we do. And so then how do we participate in this new kingdom? We're just going to look straight to Jesus' word. And the first one is repent. Step one is repent. 
Every, it's incredibly important. Martha, Martin Luther, one of my favorite old dead theologians, said in his 95 thesis, which he pinned to, the, pinned to the door, he said, when our Lord and Master said, repent, he said that the whole life of the Christian should be one of repentance. You never graduate until Jesus comes back or we are with him in heaven. You don't graduate from this first step. It is for those who are brand new to the faith and for those who have been walking with Jesus for decades and decades. And so what does it mean to repent? It means to admit that you were wrong. The Greek word is metanu. Let's say that together. It's kind of fun. Metanu. Let's say it together. Metanu. Which means to adjust your perspective or change your mind. You're going one way and you pivot and go the other. So if that's what repentance is, if that's what repentance is, let's talk about what repentance is not. Regret by itself is not repentance. Regret is certainly real. I'll hear people sometimes, you hear people say, like, I have no regrets in life. But I got regrets by like 10 a.m. in the morning. Like, I, I regret eating pizza for breakfast, cold pizza for breakfast. I regret hitting the snooze instead of going exercise. I regret, you know, snapping at my child when we're trying to get out the door. Like, people that say they have no regrets are, you know, either delusional or just completely out of touch with themselves. Like, or both. Like, it is a, if we are people, we will have regrets. In the healthiest people, healthiest person, healthiest man or woman you can be is someone who is in tune with those regrets, who names those regrets, and is able to be honest and say, I did this, but I wish I hadn't. However, repentance is much more than just regret, because regret so often stems from simply feeling bad about the consequences of our actions. If I get a speeding ticket, I will be real with you, I rarely regret speeding. I regret getting caught speeding. Like, I regret, like, I don't think about, like, I should have slowed down. I was endangering the people around me. I, I say, I should have slowed down because now I owe a lot of money. Like, this is not great. I regret that I did an action that had a consequence. Repentance is more than that. Embarrassment, also, sometimes part of repentance, but not it completely. When we sin and it affects other people, we can certainly feel embarrassment. But embarrassment is mainly, again, the feeling of being caught and now how your actions cause someone to think less of you. I regret getting caught by the police officer, and I'm, not, I'm usually not embarrassed with the police officer, but I'm embarrassed if somebody from the church drove by and you see Pastor Drew, you know, blue lights flashing right behind him on I-75. I... I'm embarrassed at that point. I'm not, even, I'm not too repentant yet, but I regret and I'm embarrassed. Apology, also not the completeness of repentance. Repentance will include healthy apologies, and let's take a second to just name what a healthy apology is and is not. A healthy apology is not, I am sorry for how this made you feel. Healthy apologies are not, I'm sorry that you were so sensitive and could not handle the authentic me. <laughs> Healthy apologies are not, I'm sorry for what I did, but I need you to understand that because of your actions, I had no choice but to act the way I did, and you just need to deal with it. That is not healthy apologies. A healthy apology is saying, I'm sorry, and then laying out the action that you did. 
and then putting a period at the end of it. This is so hard. And it's so important for our relationships with each other. I struggle deeply with this, but it's also incredibly important for our relationship with the Lord. But repentance is even more than an apology. And the last thing on that slide is it's not done out of fear. Fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves, where joy-based repentance makes us hate our sin. This is, done, this is a quote by Keller, and he, and he has transformed my understanding. A guy named Tim Keller up in New York, and he says, we have to understand that repentance is connected to Jesus and his kingdom. Repentance out of mere fear is really sorrow for the consequences of sin. Sorrow over the danger of sin. It bends the will from the sin, but the heart still clings. Fear-based repentance says, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to try really hard not to do it anymore. But our hearts are still drawn to the sin. Repentance out of conviction over mercy is more than that. It's sorrow over sin and not just its consequences. Sorrow over the grievousness of sin. And that sorrow will slowly melt your heart away from your affections to sin. It makes the sin itself disgusting to us, so it loses its attractive power over us. And we say, this disgusting thing is an affront to the one who died for me. So therefore, the, what, is, what truly is repentance, it's remorse over our sin and a willingness to change in light of the love that the King has for us. And then what's next? Julie, you can come on up. What's next we see from those red letters in your Bible in verse 17? Repent for the kingdom of God is near. First, the first step is repent. And he finds those two guys, Andrew, who sounds wonderful. Um, and they were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, come and follow me. So we repent and then we follow. We lean into what it means to have a life under the lordship of our king. Being a part of the king, kingdom means submitting to the king. Being led by the spirit and leaning into the joy of what it is to follow him in the adventure of the life that he has for us. And as we head towards the communion table, the Eucharist meal, which we take every week, what we do at this meal is in essence a, a promise, kind of a covenant renewal ceremony. We're remembering the covenant God has made to us, the promise that God gives his people from the Old Testament to the New, Genesis 15 and 17 through the Gospels, where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And the good news is that again, we get to receive this promise. He's the one who ratifies the promise through Christ. He's the one that holds us into the kingdom as men and women who've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and he's the good king that continues to say, come again to the table. I know it's been a mess of a week, but come again. So come hungry and come knowing that the king loves having you in his kingdom and come ready to take steps forward in following the king who loves you so much. So take a moment now as we head to the table and just silently confess sin. Be honest, be real, have true repentance. And if you struggle to repent, confess that. But know that he's smiling at you as you're honest before him.